Hello again, everyone. I'm Matt Lachlan. Welcome to this week's edition of Pirates Talk. Another two games, another two wins for Seton Hall as they defeat Xavier on the road and then return home to beat Marquette at the Rock 69-55, and now the winning streak stands at six. Again, we see a Pirates team able to win in different ways. Against Xavier, the Pirates led for the final 31 minutes, while against Marquette, Seton Hall fell behind by 11 in the first half but rallied to win by 14, a 25-point swing. Against the Musketeers, Jared Roden had a career-high 16 points, while against Marquette, Romero Gill controlled the middle with 10 points and 4 blocks. After the game, Golden Eagles head coach Steve Wojciechowski said that while everyone talks about Miles Powell, quote, that kid, meaning Gill, changes the game, unquote. And hasn't it been fun to see Gill add a little offense to his game, which makes the Hall even more difficult to play against? This week, my guest is someone who's a longtime member of the Seton Hall basketball program, but who hasn't scored a point, grabbed a rebound, or taken a charge. But he is another reason why Pirate Games are so special. He is the man behind the mic, the public address announcer for the Hall, Tim McClune. And it is indeed a pleasure to welcome Tim McClune to Pirates Talk. Tim and I go back a long way. Tim was the director of the Jersey Waterfront Marathon, and I was working local cable television at TV3, and he was a guest. So we've known each other a long time. There's only one of us, though, who's in the New Jersey Hall of Fame, and that is my guest, Tim. Thanks very much for spending a few moments with us. Well, thanks. Yeah, that was back in the uh, mid-'80s we met, I think. Yeah, it was way back you when. Were nice enough, you were nice enough to let us do it. We were trying to promote that event, which eventually was the uh, – United States Olympic trials, believe it or not, in 1988. But at the time, it was a fledgling thing trying to start a new marathon. The uh, governor, Kane at the time, and his administration saw it as an opportunity to uh, promote the waterfront area in Jersey City, which certainly succeeded. I don't know that the marathon helped that much, but uh, the overall, it certainly was a successful development. But you were nice enough to let me come on the show and talk about everybody's favorite topic, running (laughs) well well listen uh we have moved on that is for sure but running (laughs) has been an important part of your life and we're going to talk about your connection with seton hall but i think when we talk about it um you're running a marathon you are running races you are coaching you are at seton hall you're in the hall of fame you have a band you have restaurants have you always been this eclectic kind of guy i'm exhausted listening to you (laughs) 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 but no truthfully you do you are involved in a ton of things is that something that you've always been uh involved with uh when you were young did you always have a lot of different interests i did um i've I've tried to figure it out over the years to some extent because it is unusual i and i get that you know people are kind of fascinated by it those those who care but (laughs) when i was little uh, my brother had uh really severe polio and that was and subsequent to that had scoliosis and had a spinal fusion back when they weren't doing things like that yet like actually is fairly hot you know commonplace in the your world of ice hockey uh, we started hearing about people having spinal fusions well back then there were no stainless steel rods and my my brother was so ill that i spent a lot of time alone um daycare wasn't really an option in our family in the 50s and ironic well not interesting enough my dad worked at the veterans hospital and we lived on the grounds, and there were no other children there. And for me, I really grew up, uh, you know, sort of solo. 
and I think it fueled an imagination of sorts that you you know when you're little you just sort of make games and make things you're interested in and I was fortunate enough that I guess I you know I really don't know but I guess I had a, a lot of different kind of skills entertainment type of skills and I just kept kind of careening along and when stuff would come my way I'd be like okay <laughs> let me try that one and then the the battle became of how do you balance all that how do you actually make a living how do you do your jobs because they're plural uh and make the whole thing work and that is you know why i'm sitting at my desk on a monday morning trying to figure out what the heck i'm doing this week (laughs) (laughs) well (laughs) Well, holding it all together well there is so much on your calendar but people are fearful of failure and they want to get on that one track. It's something they do successfully. And they think, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It seems to me that fear of failure, not that you've failed a lot, although I'm sure you have stories that you may want sure. to share. But you, you, can't, you can't do what you do and be afraid of failure. Was that always a part of your makeup too? I think it is. I'm extremely optimistic. My dad always told the story about the difference between me and my brother. And we were going to go to our first ever baseball game at Ebbets Field. That's how old I am in Brooklyn. We were living in Staten Island, and it's raining just like I can just remember pounding rain. And the two of us are looking out the window, and my brother says, just my luck. I knew it was going to rain today. And I said to my father, I think it's clearing up. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't clearing up. But I I always had an optimistic bent, you know. And, and yeah, I have failed a bunch of times at things. I I can think of a couple of restaurants off the top of my head right now. (laughs) But um, I was never fearful. I I think, if anything, I had a little bit of fear of success in that I didn't concentrate on any one thing. If you remember the movie City Slickers? Yeah, and with Billy Crystal 100 years ago, and uh, what's his name plays the cowboy, and he tells them before he dies, the secret of life is just one thing. And they're like, what's the one thing? What's the one thing? And he dies <laughs> and doesn't tell them. But the one thing was, in my opinion anyway, was that he was a cowboy. That's what it was. He did one thing, and that's who he was. And I am the absolute antithesis of that because I, I do a lot of different things. And, and I'm very fortunate in that I'm – rarely bored in my life which i think was always a motivation too maybe going back to being you know a solo kid that boredom was a scary place when i had nothing to do i found it to be really frightening and so i think it just carried over into adulthood and i was very fortunate that a lot of people stepped in and helped me you know my high school track coach my college track coach they were really forming you know forming people if that's if that's english and in my in my life you know who were encouraging me and and pushing me along and it it stayed with me i mean it's why i coach now i didn't start coaching until i think 16 17 years ago um, when i was in my 50s and but i really i love coaching and it's almost like a pay it forward kind of thing you know coaching a coaching a local high school cross country and track teams it's kind of crazy well, it keeps you young, though, right? I mean, you're around those uh, teenagers, those high school age kids, and then at Seton Hall, you're uh, still with teenagers, but they're maturing into men, and yet it keeps you it keeps you young because they stay in that same time frame. Al McGuire once said that college basketball coaching, in his mind, was the cruelest profession. He said because each year I get older, 
but I still deal with the same age group. <laughs> and and then it just, it, the gap widens. But the truth of the matter is you hang around with young people, you stay young. That's interesting. I never thought of it that way, that their age group stays the same. They, You know, you graduate kids in four years, but then they're replaced by ones. I, I never really thought of that. Um, I suppose, you know, some of them age me, though, I'm telling you. <laughs> Some of the stuff that goes on, it's like trying to hold a high school track team together to talk about herding cats. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're fortunate, though. I mean, we've had a lot of success, and, and I'm really just – I am just passing along to them. The, my high school track coach at Seton Hall Prep was a man named Bill Persichetti who ran for Fordham, and he was a world record holder at Fordham in the uh, two-mile relay. And he was just one of these people who taught you the ethics of sports – that would have crossed over into any sport. You know, I can remember him withholding our medals at one race that we went into New York and we won a two mile relay somewhere, but we really didn't run very well and he wouldn't give us our medals. And, and we were horrified by this at the time. And then as it sank in over the years, I'm like, yeah, yeah, we ran, we ran terribly. We just took it for granted. And that was the kind of lessons that he taught us all the time. And it's really funny in the Rumson Fairhaven high school, book it says in big bold letters at some point about coaching it says avoid sarcasm at all times and i'm like boy i have nothing to say if i can't be sarcastic because <laughs> bill persichetti was the champion of sarcasm and, and it took you a while to to realize that he believed in you and i mean he he literally did change my life i mean people say that a lot you know oh, it was a life-changing moment but meeting him and you know he steered me into the ivy league and just help me because I was I was a year younger than my class, so I I was a 13 year old freshman and you know just callow it would be the word I guess and he was on me all the time but in a way that let me know that he loved me and that he just wanted good things for me and that's pretty much how I coach I mean if people <laughs> came to our practices and heard some of the things I say to these kids while they're running and racing and I said, well, you know, you blew it for the whole team, but we, yeah, but, but you really tried, uh, <laughs> but they get it. You know, they get the fact that first of all, I never lie to them. If I tell somebody they can do something, it's because I, I firmly believe it. And if I tell them that they ran well, well they did. And if I, and I'll tell them, you know, that wasn't your day. You didn't, but I do it with kind of a, an arm around the shoulder, you know, kind of a, approach. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we, we need that. We need to be told, <clears throat> excuse me, we need that. We need to be told that, no, that wasn't your best. If all we do is get a pat on the back, then we think, all right, you know, I can't get any higher. I'm kind of in this rut even. And uh, yeah. that's, it's just not, uh, hey, listen, you got to push. You got to push in life. There's no question I mean, about don't, that. Yeah, don't you feel that in your profession, and I don't know how you pronounce those Russian names. It's amazing to me. But, the, <laughs> but in your profession, you need that reflection back, somebody telling you you did a good job or, 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 you know, maybe to some extent helping you make some changes or something. But but we, we need that feedback. You need the, you know, your fans to meet you and say, oh, I love the way you call the games and stuff. We, we all need it. Uh, without it, a doubt. Without a doubt. You're an, enter you're an entertainer. You're in the entertainment business. And I, I and try you know, never I, I try never to forget that. Yeah, there's livelihoods at stake. I mean, the Devils just had their coach fired not too long ago, their GM very recently, and it, it is a black and white business in many ways. You win, you lose, and that's how you're judged. But the yeah. fact of the matter is, for the fans, we're entertainment. They want to get away no. from whatever is in their life for a few hours, and I try to keep that in mind all the time. Yeah, I mean, my, my job 
you know, being the PA announcer at the arena is not nearly as difficult as yours. I mean, I'm saying one word for every 800 of yours, but you know, I'm, I am in the entertainment business in the arena and, you know, I kind of bend the rules of what arena announcers do. Um, I do say more words than I'm supposed to, but uh, I realize that my job there is to entertain the crowd and to help them get to where they want to get. But that's you why. Know? But that's why people like you as the PA announcer, and I and that now gives us the transition into your time at Seton Hall because you're not simply saying Miles Powell for three, and maybe yeah. even with just some emphasis, as a lot of PA announcers do. You're kind of casual at times, you know, during the timeout. You're really talking to the fans. It's You're not reading a script. Is that something that you had to develop, or did that really happen right from the get-go? It came – well, I first worked with the Nets. Um, I, I was with the Net New Jersey – then New Jersey Nets for nine years. Another time where and, our paths crossed. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, – they had never had a game operations director before. And for people that don't know, a game operations person does just what it sounds like. And that you have cheerleaders and mascots and music and videos and you tie that all together into a show. And I took it a little further in that. Um, I sort of championed the idea that from the moment a car comes into the parking lot, it all begins. And it's not just when they come into the building, but they've already, you know, had experience coming in as their music playing What's the announcement outside? Are you handing things out? Are the cheerleaders there? You know, that kind of stuff. And taking it all the way through. And then I started announcing the game after a while. I have to admit, I was getting impatient with our announcer. And I was like, I can do that, you know. And I had no idea I would enjoy it so much. Because it seemed kind of dry, you know. Like you say, it's like, you know, basket by so-and-so. And then you've got the other school of thought of the announcers and the buildings who will just sing the whole thing, you know, miles, you know, they, they just go off on everything. And I have actually tried to develop a pattern where I leave room for myself and therefore leave room for the fans. I can tell when I say something that the fans are responding um, because of the way I do it and because of the way I waited for the, for the moment, you know, and, it, it, I, I have to admit, I, I get a big kick out of it when I realize that it's, I'm not exactly a stand-up comic, but I can get an, an audience reaction out of 12,000 people by saying things a certain way. Which is a rush, no question. Is part of your being in the music business, like you, you're on stage and each crowd is different, each show is different, and you've got to be able to get them as involved, no matter what the vibe is, as the previous show, which might have been the greatest one you've ever had because it just <laughs> worked. Is there something similar in what you do in the public address world? Like sometimes the crowd's bigger, sometimes it's maybe not going as well for Seton Hall, maybe it's not as much of a rivalry. Does that all enter uh, enter into the into the work, if you will? Well, I think it's uh, those are the two halves. Of it. The one thing is I, I obviously can't really control what goes on on the court. I mean, I can help build an atmosphere that maybe encourages the team, but that's it. I'm not doing anything. Um, so it, it can help there, but it's funny because if people ask me what I do for a living, I actually do tell them I'm an entertainer. That's what I do. And there's just different ways that I do it, whether it's through the restaurant business or by announcing games or playing with my band and doing other personal appearances and stuff. I am, that's who I am. I'm an entertainer. My family freaks out 
I mean, my kids, sometimes we're walking along and I have to admit, I do say hello to almost everybody we walk by. You know, somebody's walking past you in the hallway and it's like, hi, I have no idea who they are. And I'm not trying to be, you know, Johnny Appleseed here spreading goodwill, but um, it's just the way my dad raised me. My father was one who would say hello to people and uh, he didn't know. And, and I've always had that. And it, I think that, you know, as I morphed into our other world of Holiday Express, which I, I think, you know, a lot of people have heard of, it's this charity I started 27 years ago now, um, where at holiday time between, we start in the beginning of November and we go to Christmas Eve, um, and we bring a humongous Christmas slash holiday party to places that generally speaking, if we're not there, they get little or no attention. And um, so it's long-term residential psychiatric facilities, homeless shelters, soup kitchens, AIDS hospices, places like that. And we bring the, a big party, but it includes a band. And we just do all the holiday favorites and all the rest of it. And I think that my whole life put me in a position where I was ready to do that, where I could be in a room of strangers who are in huge life challenges uh, and maybe incredibly depressed. And we're sent to them <laughs> to give them a couple of hours a year because we see them once a year in many cases. And we spend just a few hours with them. Um, and we hope that it lasts and that it somehow we're bringing, in a sense, the outside world, the, quote, real world into their circumstances, which are horrific, and that it makes a difference. And somebody asked me recently about how I do that. And I hadn't really thought about it. I really don't. I, I try not to be like, oh, let's think about what I'm doing here. <laughs> but I understand that I make an emotional commitment to, in a sense, bring it to every one of those shows. And we we face audiences that sometimes would look at us and hate us right off the bat. Just like, what are you people doing here? You know. And so I have to try to win that, <laughs> in quotes, you know, that to win the day, to be an entertainer that, and to have people know we're there for them. And even if you don't like us very much for the first 20 minutes, I'm going to get you. But I say to all of our audiences, and I say it to ourselves, because we have 125 musicians in the organization now and um, probably well over 1,000 adult volunteers. And we do 100 events between this year. I think we started November 4th, and we had those, I said, on Christmas Eve. We did 100 events in all kinds of crazy places. I did half of them. I can't obviously do all of them, but... Uh, you know, when when you when you get there and you realize what you're what you're trying to accomplish, I think if I were self-conscious, I'd never go. You'd think you couldn't do it, uh, and yet it's it's so rewarding. Uh, it's it's crazy. You know, the the saying of it's better to give than to receive. We all know that, and and we all know that it's true. Any time anybody in all of our lives, if you do something nice for someone else, you, you know you feel good about it. This is on a different level altogether in the sense that we dug deeper and, you know, and we found the neediest of the needy and the basically in the metro area. And I came to understand, uh, you know, maybe a bunch of years ago that what we were really doing was healing ourselves. It was more than feeling better about it. Just we were healing ourselves for the things in our own lives that didn't go well or tragedies or just different things that happened. And, and in a sense, it was almost like solving a grieving process. And, um, when my I always say my job is to make sure that all the volunteers get paid, and obviously we're volunteers. <laughs> but when but when we get on the bus and you sit down on the bus and you're like, oh, I'm glad I was there. That was 
everybody getting paid, you know, and, and that's, you know, just, uh, I don't know how I entangled that into this conversation we're having. But. Well, it's part of, it's part of who you are. It's part of your widespread interests. It's part of the reason why you were inducted into the New Jersey Hall of Fame, well-deserved, and, you know, why so many people want to kind of be a part of a Tim McClune's sphere of influence because you don't you don't know what it's going to be all about it just seems like a heck of a ride a couple of more and then we'll let you go how did this Seton Hall thing start like what was the connection first well when I was I grew up in South Orange first of all where the university is located when the prep was Um, on the campus right yeah also because uh after we left that you know I made such a sad sounding circumstance of living at that veterans hospital but when my dad left uh the veterans administration we moved to South Orange and so I grew up at Our Lady of Sorrows Catholic School and then went on to Seton Hall Prep and it was on the campus then. And, of course, Seton Hall University basketball was a big deal. Nick Workman was just this mythic figure who was nice to me as a little kid. And I just became a huge fan of Seton Hall basketball and I always stayed there. And then I, you know, all those years later, I worked for the Nets and uh, Governor Cody former governor Cody was on me. Who's, you know, he always sits in the same seat at every Seton Hall game. Um, he was on me to go work for Seton Hall because they didn't have game operations. And eventually I got to the point where, you know, it was really time to move on from the nets and maybe they wanted to move on from me too. And so I started the game operations for Seton Hall now 20, whatever years ago. And it was just sort of a natural thing because I always had that Seton Hall thing. My mom worked there also at the university. So, you know, it was just it was just a natural. And Governor Cody made it. I went over there and I spoke to uh, the then athletic director and he's like, uh, OK, so we need you to do whatever it is you do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll pay you a little bit of money to do it. And off you go. And I always said one of the great things about working for Seton Hall is they never told me what to do. You know, people like myself who don't want to have bosses and stuff like that. It's just uh it was an ideal circumstance. They were always just so nice to me and just appreciative uh, of everything I did. And, you know, they felt I brought a lot of value to the program. I'm not sure it was true or not, but, uh, I, you know, I do feel that when people spend their money to go see a game or if they spend their money to come see me play or to, you know, see Holiday Express in a theater or something like that, we owe them. We owe them. And I tell all of our restaurant employees all the time, that you know, when they say the customer is always right and all those kind of cliches, my rejoinder to that is no, it's not a question of them always being right. They're here to pay your check. They're here paying you. You know, they're your employer and you have to behave towards the customers like you would to your employer. You may not like everything about it, but you owe them because they're the ones who are actually paying you. And you know, I, I feel that way about basketball that you know, for Seton Hall fans that they're paying all of us and and they're coming into the building. And I mean, I don't think in my time with Seton Hall, now going back 20, 30 years ago when the Big East, maybe even longer, when the Big East was the big thing, humongous crowds came out to the old Meadowlands Arena to see Seton Hall and to see other Big East teams. And then that went through a a period of time when a big crowd was like seven or 8,000 for Seton Hall. Now there's such a buzz in the building. I said that right to my director on uh, on Saturday when the last game we had there that I said, boy, there's a buzz in this building tonight. And there were almost 13,000 people there to see Marquette. Now, Marquette's a real good team, and they have a star player. 
but there was no way there would have been 13,000 people there five years ago, six years ago. I think it was that Whitehead team to some extent that brought the buzz, but people have come to once again discover that college basketball is arguably the most entertaining two hours you can spend in the sports world. No offense to ice hockey, Matt. I, 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 I'm not offended. I, I, I know where you're coming from. I know where you're coming from. But it is good to see that Seton Hall uh, is back, that college basketball is back at the Rock. And so I will leave you with this question. What do you make of this year's team, and how high are your hopes? Well, let's, let's talk about it from a basketball and a non-basketball sense. So from a non-basketball sense, I think what Coach Willard and his staff and the administration has done is they bring in nice people to play basketball for Seton Hall. Those that that big group of five that came in a few years ago, Isaiah Whitehead and all such, they all graduated on time, and I think that resonates with with the fans. And this group of kids, my my son is one of the student managers actually. He really likes these guys, you know. They're nice people, and so I think that's one side of it. And then the other side of it, you know, and that and that credit has to go to you know Kevin Willard and his staff who they recruit and what they're trying to do. On the other hand, I when. The two when Mamakulashvili and I just like saying that in front of you, even though you have to, even though you have to say like I go Mamu, <laughs> but you say fifteen names a night that is so much more difficult than that, and they're moving a lot quicker. But uh, <laughs> but when he and you know Miles went down with injuries, in in the little press room there before the next game, we were all sitting there wondering because you know Maryland was coming in, they were number five at the time, and we're all thinking Seton Hall may never win again this season. I mean, it, it felt that bad after getting embarrassed by Rutgers in that game where Powell got hurt and, you know, Mamu's out and all this. Well, as it turns out, they're terrific. And I think part of it is that it's team play, that you can really see that they've matured as a group of young men who like sharing the ball. They don't rebound terribly well, you know, but they hustle like crazy. You don't see, you know, it's funny, in my little world of coaching track, we ran the um, county relays the other night. And so there's six races on the track with four kids in each relay team, 24 efforts, and all 24 kids ran well. I mean, they ran as well as they could. Let's put it that way. They didn't win everything, but they all gave us efforts. Well, when you watch Seton Hall, you come away from those games and you realize that those 12 guys in that roster and really the nine in the rotation or whatever it is, they play hard every second of the way. They're not perfect ball players. By any stretch, there's who knows how many professionals there are on that team. There may only be one, you know, or two, you know, or somebody play, you know, Mamu maybe goes and plays abroad after, afterwards. But beyond that, they're college kids. I, I think partly because they're so big, you forget how young they are. My, my son was telling me he was sitting with one of the players on the team, and he realized, he's my age. He may be 6'9", 250, but we're the same age. <laughs> and it was just kind of weird for him, you know. But when you watch them play and they play so hard, you know, for Seton Hall, for whatever their reasons are, you know, it's, it's a joy. It's a joy to watch it. So I, I think we were all maybe swept along overestimating them. And then we dramatically underestimated them because it just looked like they weren't going to be able to recover from these things. But then you see a guy like Quincy McKnight uh, with Miles Powell's absence. All of a sudden, Oh, that's the guy that was scoring all those points for sacred heart when he played for them. <laughs> and then he puts up 21 on somebody when he was basically subverting his game to the greater good while you know, Powell was leading the way. And I, I think now what you look at is that the big guys, I mean, they have these two seven-footers, you know, 
who are very limited skill-wise, but they play hard and they know their roles. And I, I think that's, you know, probably in all sports, it's the same thing. Does the player know their role? You know, I read an article this morning about little Shavar Reynolds, the, the walk-on who's getting more and more minutes now. And it was all about that. It's just him playing his role. He knows what he can and he can't do. Well, Tim, I was hoping to get 15 or so minutes of your busy time, <laughs> and it extended far beyond that. I do appreciate it. I think the sky's, the sky's the limit for Seton Hall. It has all the makings of a very special year, knock on wood. Uh, anything yeah. can happen along the way, and once you get to the tournament, hey, uh, upsets occur all the time. But there's something yeah. about this team that brings back some very warm and fuzzy memories of some of the heights that previous clubs have attained, and uh, there's something special. There's no doubt about it. And you know what else is that the, the fans are now making, you know, the Rock a, a serious place where maybe it's not such a friendly place to come into as, you know, the opposition. It used to be like when Villanova would come in there, you'd feel like the crowd was 50-50. In the, in the former days when Syracuse was in the Big East and UConn, you'd almost feel like it was a visiting building. Kind of like when I worked with the Nets and the Knicks would come into the arena and you'd realize that three-quarters of the crowd was cheering for the Knicks. It's not like that anymore. 98% of that crowd is all in for Seton Hall. You know, I think it's having an effect on their success as well. I agree. And on that note, we'll wrap things up. Tim, thanks very much for your time. I do appreciate it. You're involved in so many wonderful things, philanthropic. Uh, you're a community-minded guy, a businessman, the restaurant's uh, are wonderful, and, and you keep adding to your portfolio and your work with uh, uh, Rumson Fairhaven. On and on and on we could go. I do appreciate your giving us a few minutes of your time, and we look forward to hearing you at the next Seton Hall game. All right. Thanks, Matt. It's been great knowing you all these years, too, and we're still going. And that'll do it for this edition of Pirates Talk, a Seton Hall basketball podcast. Thanks very much to Tim McClune again for joining us this week. The road ahead for Seton Hall is literally on the road. Wednesday against Butler, a showdown for first place in the conference, and then things wrap up as the Pirates travel to take on St. John's. We'll see you next week. Thanks for your company. Bye-bye, everyone.